This is Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast hosted by Luke Whittle-Gillard and Matt Hans. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Medicine on the Frontier. I'm your host Luke Whittle-Gillard and if you hear a bit of background noise, it's because I'm currently in the middle of the Zambian bush. I'm here on safari. It's an absolutely incredible experience. I really don't want to go home. We couldn't stop the editing of the show, so here we are, episode three of Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Mark Cherry, mostly known as Scopey. He's an army veteran now turned jungle expedition leader and is the owner of Mad Dog Adventures. In this episode, we're talking about everything to do with the tropics and, of course, the standard with us talking about sustainability in the field. So I hope you guys enjoy. Let's get into the episode. Medic! Well, welcome, Scopey, to uh, to the podcast. It's great to have you here with us. It's the first time that you and I have spoken together, but I know you and Matt know each other quite well. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and where you've come from. Um, well, my, my name's Mark, but everyone calls me Scopey. And... Um... I served in the British Army for 12 years. Got a bit of a, a thing for the outdoors from that. I'm, I'm originally a Londoner, so um, the mountains and the outdoors was a thing that the military sort of pushed me into. And then uh, got out, did every space camp, and sat in a tent just short of every space camp, wondering how I could um, continue to have adventures while apparently growing up. And I don't know if I've done much growing up, but I've managed to find a way to have more adventures. <laughs> So, um, yeah, started a little business and uh, gone from there. And tell us a little bit about a bit more about your business. You know, you've been very, uh, very coy about it all. <laughs> tell us a little bit about Mad Dog and what it is that you guys do. Uh, so me and two best mates started um, Mad Dog Adventures. And it literally was like, as I said, it was an excuse to sort of continue having adventures while apparently growing up and doing houses and relationships and all that sort of thing. Um, so what we do at the moment is we do guided mountain adventures in the UK. Um, we teach survival and expedition skills courses. So some people would call bushcraft, but you'll never catch me whittling a bowl or, or making a spoon. <laughs> um, and then obviously last year we, we started venturing into the international stuff um, and we went away to the jungle with, with Matt. And it was an incredible trip. It was... Um... You know, for, for those of you who, who are... Obviously, me and Mark have known each other a long time. Um, the first time we really crossed paths was, I can't even remember when it was, was it 2010, 11, around there, yeah, we went to the jungle? Like yeah. Uh, and that was uh, obviously before Mad Dog. You, yeah. You'd have definitely been planning it, I think. I think it was something that was kind of in the the back burner there. You had this dream of going out and doing something. So it was pretty cool to see that change from uh, our first jungle trip to the second one, when all of a sudden, you know, the first time you were a client and you came out, and then 10 years later, there you are with an entire group of people that have all come under your name. So I think that was uh, that was super cool to see. It's, uh, and it was uh, an absolute epic jungle trip that we took as a group um, out in Lankawi. That was uh, that was a cracker. It was a good one. So um, yeah, was, that, was, that was super cool to see that transition. Yeah, it was definitely an idea when I was out in the jungle with yourself. It was, it was there. The name was there. The idea was there. And it was sort of... Um, actually, that jungle trip was the, the the last push to get back and actually get off our backsides and make the idea a reality. 
you can be honest. How how was it being with Matt in the jungle for for a week? Like, <laughs> well, come on, be honest with me. Well, if I'm being brutally honest, I think Matt developed a nickname for me that has uh, lived on. Um, I think now anyone that gets the iffy belly in the jungle is called the Ropey Scopies. Oh um, no! So, <laughs> I I got a little I got a little bit poorly. <laughs> but seeing as this is medicine on the frontier, I yeah. think we should maybe discuss the incident in, in in slightly less embarrassing detail. But I no, I fuck it, we're going all in. So we went to uh, we were in Brunei. We drove ourselves down the Labby Road. We came all the way into the bottom there and then into the trailhead, and we disappeared into the jungle in Brunei. And I think it was at the main base camp we used, which was, oh, yeah, I think we go, you go up the first two waterfalls and out the backside, and there's a super nice base camp there. And uh, yeah, and that's where the ropey scopers were, were born. Poor, poor Mark sitting in his hammock, um, struggling to hold in fluids was the problem. <laughs> from, from, uh, from any end, from, from every possible orifice. So oh, the, no. there, was, there was a little bit of hammock washing in the river and uh, oh <laughs> no <laughs> I mean bizarrely I had a great time there was definitely some stematil yeah <laughs> put me off the jungle but um, I, I thought I was going to leave part of myself there I definitely lost some weight there oh I think you did uh, I think there's there's been <laughs> There's bits of you scattered all over that base camp. I, I colonised um, that part of Brunei. It, there, there is a, a, a huge epicentre of new fungi growing in that area of the base camp now. Oh, um, God. So, yeah, so that was it. So, poor Mark actually was, um, as everyone knows, when you get ill in the jungle, it's really hard to get better. It's, um, <laughs> you know, the jungle is not the best place for pre-hospital care. Um, it's a pretty miserable place to feel like death and it's uh, it's definitely not a cool place to be uh, throwing up and um, and having it coming out the other end at the same time because you've you, you know you're going to end up well I think do you want to describe the beauty Mark that you felt when you just were able to sit in the river and just get it out in the river because I think that is a that was the epitome of your loneliness really yeah. that that moment that. Yeah, Matt, Matt convinced me to try and come out of the hammock for the day. They were going to go fishing, and um, I felt really, really ropey. But obviously, you don't want to... I've gone that far. I dreamt of going to the jungle. That was, you know, right up my street. And um, I sat down in this river and thought, I feel all right, you know. I'm okay. <laughs> and then I think I fed half the population of the river. Um, oh. Yeah. Through my trousers. Oh no! <laughs> and I think it, it's what. Oh, oh no! <laughs> oh. And if it's anything like the 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 jungle trips I've been on, it it you only have one set of clothes. You got your dry clothes and your yeah. wet clothes. So you, I'm guessing, have you soiled both? Both are both uh, are gone, by, or is by it... a miracle, I managed to um, avoid soiling the dry clothes, but. Only by sort of midnight acrobatics and sort of, I mean, I, I come close <laughs> once. And, and you know, probably people probably heard me screaming, oh no, oh no, oh no, as um, bad things <laughs> happened. I mean, I've got a really well, great, what... I've got a great picture that has been used on Instagram and, and, and stuff. And it, it's me sat in the river looking out on this pool. And if you didn't know, you'd think, look at that hardcore jungle explorer and what they can't see is I'm about to shit myself <laughs> minutes later the world ended 
But I guess oh I guess that God. that really is the uh, the true image of an expedition guide, isn't it? On the outside, looking stoic and in control. On the inside, desperately holding in a shit. That's that's <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. I, I think. Um, oh, I, I love they, that. They, what's that saying? You know, it's the jungle is neutral, and I I went away with unique expeditions uh, for a recce last year to a bit a bit south of Langkawi uh, in Malaysia to this whole you know beautiful area and it was absolutely awesome but the jungle was not neutral because it was a totally different way of me exploring the jungle uh and it was just anything that could have gone wrong to me went wrong i got the nickname captain chaos within about two days uh and there's too many stories i'm gonna hide most of them for my own sake uh but yeah no it's a it's a wonderful place the jungle but it definitely does make you or break you and now i'm like i see a spider and i'm like yeah it's all right. It's not the size of my fist. That's okay. <laughs> Any smaller than that, and we're doing okay. Yeah, it is a oh. it is a true level of men that it is. But yeah, so I mean, obviously that kind of highlights uh, the uh, yeah the the tenacity the jungle will use to get you uh, to get you on your back. Um, but yeah, I mean, we got you fixed up relatively well. I think you were you were pretty you were pretty ropey scorpy for about two days, two and a half yeah. days, and then you were kind of good to go afterwards. Um, so yeah, so I guess now everybody knows if you are called out for having a case of the old ropes, then um, we're very aware what's what's happening. That, <laughs> that, that was that was where it was born, and it was, it's lived for me forever. So technically, you've been with it on every expedition I've ever been on because there's always someone who's who ends up with a with a case of the ropey scorpions at some point on a jungle. So um, you, you live on. Wow, I try. Yeah. Yeah. In, into into legend, yeah. <laughs> my scorpion yeah. is is there. That's it. That's it. So, I mean, can you tell me a little bit about your love for the jungle or your hate for the jungle? Because we all have a love and a hate for it. It's um, it's not just all beauty. Um, but from your personal perspective, obviously you dreamt of going, you went there and you literally had a, a shit time. Um, but it was yeah. great at the same time. Uh, and you've been back again. So we obviously didn't kill it. We didn't kill the jungle dream. Um, what's, what's your connection to the jungle? What is it that just does it for you? I think... As a, as a teenager of, of, I mean, I'm 44, so probably quite a few teenagers my age, you know, wanting to join the forces, read books like um, Media Action uh, and a lot of those sort of books about lads that were doing selection. And obviously the jungle features in just about every book. And um, all those books will say how hard the jungle is and that that's real UKSF selection or if you can soldier in the jungle, you can soldier anywhere. So as a soldier, the jungle was something... I felt I wanted to test myself against. Um, and unfortunately, the war on terror sort of put any chances of me going on a, a jungle warfare course out the window. We're too busy messing around in hot, sandy places. Uh, but that drive, that want to go there just never left. And all it did was transition from, I want to prove myself as a soldier to, all right, well, now I'm doing this mountain leader, expedition guy, like outdoor thing. Well, now I want to prove myself in that in that format. Um, and I love the woods. I'm happiest in my hammock. Um, and the jungle is like the woods on steroids. It's like, well, if you can cope in the jungle, then nipping out in the woods with some clients in the UK or anywhere else that isn't the jungle is not really going to bother you. Um, and I, I think it's the ultimate type two fun. Yeah. It's great yeah. when you look back on it. At the time, sometimes, <laughs> not so much. 
Yeah, it is somewhat of an emotional emotional roller coaster. The jungle. There's um, there's definite uh, Stuart, who's one of our guys. Stuart, I've spent a lot of time in the jungle with. I, he's described it to me as this mood magnifier, and that term stuck with me. And I've used that term mm. a lot with clients when I've tried to describe it. And it really is. If you're in great spirits and you feel good, you look up and you see this majestic beauty, which is just so long from any imagination you have because it's completely four-dimensional you feel it you hear it you see it you can smell it as soon as your kind of humor and morale starts to take a dip which can be anything it can be absolutely anything that creates that it just could be the incessant mosquitoes inside the hammock or you know that leech bite that's itching like crazy as soon as that morale dips good god it's it's there everywhere it's just this constant rain yeah and it becomes a real pressure pot of emotions um and I think that's that's it. You really do prove yourself in the jungle um, because if you can hold it together, and it is a transformative experience, especially when you're there with other people, because everyone's going through these same kind of roller coaster days, and you can guarantee no one is going to be up every day of the expedition. Everyone is going to have a dip, and you're going to have to pull each other back up and help each other out through the course of um, of, of a ten day trip. And I think that's what really makes the team. Um, I think the jungle really helps kind of drag together the team spirit. Because after a few days, you start to realize that you're no longer immune. You, uh, you're not immune to its kind of depthly grasps of darkness. No. Um, and once you found yourself there, you have this ultimate respect for other people who are going through the same thing. And it, it just kind of builds that team, um, that team synergy together. And all of a sudden, you kind of start operating again. Um, and the jungle's kind of... Uh, wow. So you've done two different types of jungle now, haven't you? You've been into the kind of deep primary jungles of Borneo with me. Yeah. And then last year we were out in Langkawi, which is a bit of a blend. The jungle itself is, I wouldn't particularly class it as this kind of deep primary jungle, although it does have the monsters. There is some huge big trees there, but that final canopy is much less. Um, And obviously the transition there then out onto the tropical beaches, um, which is a very different style. We're much drier. The, the whole concept changes of jungle, sand and sand everywhere, everywhere, sand everywhere, yeah. uh, and and let's not. It almost sounds like a holiday. I don't, I don't know what this steady, is. You know, steady, beach, steady sand. <laughs> I found the beach yeah, harder than the jungle. Uh, yeah. Me and sand don't get along. Yeah, and obviously uh, the suntan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Scopey went out for quite a long uh, spearfishing trip. <laughs> Pretty long spearfishing yeah. trip and came back with the most incredible diving goggle um, sun, oh. sun hey, I've seen. I was trying it to was put myself out sunburn. there for the clients and get them some good pictures. And uh, yeah, I looked like Scuba Steve for the rest of the trip. <laughs> Come straight back. Did, did you get the photos up. though? I did. I did. Uh, no, the beaches, the beaches, you know, can be deadly. And I think that's one of those things of you sort of come out and you're like, oh, this is fantastic. We're out of the jungle. We've got somewhere where I haven't got a snake that's going to crawl across my hammock. I haven't got leeches and mozzies all over me. But it, it can be just as deadly. And, you know, trying to survive, I think that's the great thing about the Langkawi trip was, you know, you, you learned that beach survival, which is if you're on a tropical island, you've got to do both. You can't just spend all your time in the jungle. You've got to be able to, to adapt and, and use both environments. And I'm a surfer and a diver. I love the ocean. Uh, but God, you know, spending spending that long trying to forage for food. Uh, you tell me, how was the spearfishing? Because I don't think it's probably that effective, is it? It wasn't that successful. I think um, 
Did we catch two? <laughs> you can talk for two yourself. Fish. I think I got. I think you caught one. I, I got. And then the, I, I, I got. I got one, and I think um, I mean, James I caught, I think, the, caught a little one, didn't he? Yeah, James. James, James had a little one. I had a, a, a good little uh, a good little tuna who fed us for uh, a little while, but um, yeah, it's not easy, and visibility is no. a problem. Uh, you know, mm. I mean, the, the chances of me shooting that tuna were actually uh, very slim. I think we we frightened each other as much because it was such bad viz, and all of a sudden. <laughs> I'm I'm face to face with the tuna. I'm thinking, shit, I've got to let go. And then you know, it's you have to go through that process of I wasn't hunting. We were hunting each other, and then it was kind of that awkward moment <laughs> where you just come face off, and uh, it was whoever got to go first. Yeah, it is. It's really difficult. And it's worth clarifying to to the listeners: we're not talking about modern day spear guns, you know, which have got uh, no. a trigger on them. These are old school impromptu uh, they are spear guns, handmade right? spear yeah. guns with. Um, you know, gummy rubber tied around long whittled sticks with handmade spears on the end, um, which aren't the most accurate. And uh, and if you miss and hit the reef, then you've just destroyed your spear as well as a bit of the reef. Um, so it's, uh, it, yeah, it's, it is, it's, uh, it's tricky. And I have a huge amount of respect for it. The, um, you know, we weren't kind of safe always on the beach. We did have some visitors. Uh, we were under constant attack from, uh, from a tribe of local monkeys. Um, <laughs> who singled would... out one client in particular, which cracked me. Yeah, the, uh, I think mark, they, you know, yeah, they they took a look around. They spotted a weakness, and um, and they went for him. And the poor guy was. Uh, they really made them. You know, he was the target. They were in there eating through his tablets, um, broken into his med beer. kit, eat through all of his tablets. Hey. They they found a beer can he'd taken with him and shotgunned the beer can. I think they stole his head talk. <laughs> Head torch, yeah, running up the beach in the head torch. Yeah. I mean, the party, the party the monkeys much have had after shotgunning cans of lager, <laughs> overdosing on antihistamines and then having a rave in the jungle with a head torch must have been pretty epic. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just seeing uh, local tribe pictures, UFO sightings, and it's just, it's, it's, the, head, it's the head torch in the trees being a red light. <laughs> Oh, it was. Um, oh, it, it is, and you know, we've actually discussed in future years of taking some um, some kampong dogs with us, some village dogs out there, just to keep the monkeys away from the areas. Um, and it is, it's another thing. Is get back to a slightly less comical side, but when you've got clients in the jungle, having uh, continuous monkey attacks is is a bit of an issue. You know, personally, mm. no one was in any danger because they've they've got no interest in coming close when uh, when we're all around camp. But as soon as we left, as soon as we went out. To explore a new area, or we were out on the water fishing. Um, they, they'd come. They were sitting, watching, and waiting, uh, and they'd be straight in for that opportunity. So um, it is always something to think of, especially when we've done these longer trips. When we used to go into the Labby region, myself and Stuart would take in all the equipment the day before. We'd put it all tied up in trees and bags, and that was a constant worry that if we turned up at base camp and all the food had gone. Or, you know, mm. all the supplies had been ransacked and were spread in an area of three kilometers around the jungle. It, it really is. It's, uh, the jungle's a pretty difficult place to, um, to have these kind of long-standing camps without being found by the, uh, the others. It's a little bit like Lost. You know, they'll, um, they, they will come and find you. And I think it's that thing as well. It, it's, it's not just if they ransack it, you know, from a medical perspective, if they somehow got in without us realizing and, you have that transfer of disease, you know, you could you could have uh, an outbreak of, of sorts there, you know, 
we could be giving something to them as well. And you've got to think about the impact that we're having as explorers in that environment. And, you know, also, you know, you lose your kit. Resupply is, you know, is difficult. We had to, when we were in Ulamuda, uh, in Malaysia, it, it was boats. And even then it was, you know, an hour and a half, you know, boat drive in. And then maybe, maybe you can trek out to the logging track, but that was closed and hadn't been open for 10 years. And, you know, so if you're doing an evac, it's, it's a long evac yeah. and it's not... <laughs> Yeah, this is it. I mean, the islands we use in Lankawi are a long way from anywhere. It literally is a small island mm. in the middle of nowhere. The view you have out is this small rock and everything else is the South China Sea. There is nothing else. You don't see boats. Every now and then there'll be a local fisherman who comes around and fishes a bit and disappears. But but that's it. It's um, So, yeah. But I mean, the, the sad side of where we are is the, the kind of human impact. The beach area we use is strong with plastic. Um, we make a yeah, concerted effort as an expedition team to get there before the clients. And I think we took in excess of 30 huge, you know, bin bags of, of plastic waste from a very small area. And I mean, a small area big enough for four or five people to camp. And that is no joke. It is um, an incredible amount of plastic. Um, and when you go for uh, go for a walk around the area, you know, we make a huge effort to try and pick up as much as we can. I think we did three litter picks there in the course of that one expedition. And there was probably excess of 70, 80 huge sacks of plastic, uh, which the sad part is a reality that was probably a drop in the ocean in comparison to what was on just that one island. Well, the backside of it, when we went for the, um, when we went for like a recce, when we walked for that walk. Yeah, it's like cold. We found that, yeah, which was, I've got the pictures. I'll have to put them up on Instagram. And you got the before and after as we walk over the, sort of rise in the ground. Yeah. I've got a picture of yourself, Jack and, and Becca, and it looks out on a stunning bay. And then as you just get that little bit more height and you see the depth of plastic is just unreal. Just beneath yeah, it. It truly was like a, an Instagram versus reality picture because, uh, yeah. you know, a, ch- a change of a few degrees of looking down all of a sudden. I mean, the amount of plastic is, um, yeah, it's kind of jaw-dropping, actually. It's, uh, it's insane. You, you don't see that much plastic at the, the local skip. No. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I really to, agree. To actually see. Um, it, you can't... It doesn't bring it home seeing it on telly that people are out cleaning up beaches and there's plastic in the water. Seeing it for yourself in such a stunning environment and then, you know, there's a million and one like left left foot flip-flops there, bizarrely, and um, bottles and that. Mm. That really drives home. Yeah, it does, and it's, it's uh, and the sad thing is, it's, it's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It really is, and uh, you know, it's it, it's a global problem. Yeah, and I think the the great thing about doing the way we do well, it, the, the picking it up in the bags, is... it's just picking it up, just pick it up. Everybody, if you can, just pick it up, pick it up, and take it and recycle it. Mm. It's um, and if everybody that goes, and because we all know people go and visit islands just like this, it's it's used. Uh, by local dive companies we have uh, you know a really good friend of mine and my fixer ej who's out there um he's out there at least once a month now doing big litter picks and things we he takes clients out and they'll they'll just scour the beaches i know the other small dive company Lankawi scuba are out there as well uh which is dd and stuff they're out and they're picking up the rubbish it's nice that almost we started something cool we started giving people a reason to get out there and clean up some beaches um and the irony was, is after we did that, 
they managed to survive all the way through COVID because they were doing something for the community. They, they showed that they were picking up this rubbish, which meant the government supported them massively. Um, and after, after the pandemic, they're the only two dive companies that survived. Ironically, the two small ones, yeah, not brilliant. the two huge ones with the massive customer bases, mm. because they were found to be doing nothing for the environment, driving these huge diesel ferry boats backwards and forwards, whereas these guys were out picking up rubbish in small bags. And, um, and that made a massive impact for them in the future. So it was a positive mark that we left. Uh, and it's a fantastic now. I really enjoy seeing the posts come up on Instagram when they've been out and picked up rubbish because it, it does make you feel like it's just that's what a cool thing to do, to keep doing that, keep selling that, that this is a part of what we have to do. If we want to look after these wild places, we're literally going to have to clean up after ourselves and, uh, and the rest of humanity so that we can continue to enjoy them. As annoying as that is, it's so important that we continue to do it um, because I don't ever want to stop being able to go to these incredible places and share them with clients. They're, uh, they're such in fa- fascinating places to be. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I'm super happy that we were able to keep that going. I think that was a, a really cool kind of uh, final imprint to leave on Lankawi that we've set up a, a good standard for picking up trash on these islands um, because the problem in Southeast Asia is off the scale the amount of plastic is mm. it's terrifying, actually. It's terrifying that there's so much there. Millions upon millions of plastic bottles, huge fishing containers, helmets, like Mark said, a thousand and one left flip-flops, you know, toy soldiers. We found all sorts, medical stuff, bottles of medications, needles, yeah, a lot of just things that, that just washes up, that are just being thrown. They're just being thrown somewhere. Um and the languages that are on the bottles are from the entirety of Southeast Asia. They're coming from everywhere. They're just finding themselves in these streams and current flows and ending up you know, in the Andaman Sea and around those areas. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's something we certainly continue to do and we'll, we'll always continue to run these kind of eco-litter-picking starts to our expeditions because um, I think it's such a, a vital part. I think it's worth mentioning, you know, uh... So I used to work for an NGO called Plastic Planet, and we looked at you know how how this could be managed. I mean, there are these gyres in, in every ocean where you know the currents meet, and we we get this sort of area where it's it's a vortex, and and nothing can escape it. And we've got these massive plastic islands all over the world, uh, and you know it it is our consumerism which is causing it. And it's a lack of of sanitation. It's a lack of being able to have garbage collection, and even in the UK. Uh, I'm not sure about Norway, Matt. You could tell us about that. Most, the majority of our recycling isn't recycled no, because shocking. the plants that we have can't deal with the with the with the mass amount of recycling that we have together. And you, you know, my grandparents are very, very strict on how they separate everything into different boxes. And I know in in China now they're actually leading the effort with recycling in the sense of in Shanghai. I think they have eight different bins. Mm. And so, like, if you're in an apartment complex. If one of the bins is wrong, they find the entire building. Yeah, not just the person that did it; they find everybody. So it's this, you know. Yes, you know, Asia has got a lot to account for as a continent in terms of its its mass sort of uh, of production and and its irresponsible way of handling that waste. But it's it's a global thing, and I think us as consumers need to think about how we're buying products. I know I've been buying a whole lot of new uh, kit at the moment. And the amount that's wrapped in plastic still from outdoor brands, I'm not going to name and shame them because there are quite a few, but, you know, 
we got to be better at it, guys. It's like we don't need to wrap sleeping bags in plastic. It doesn't need to happen anymore. I think that no, the I fact agree. that we went out on the recce, on the recce before taking clients out, we must have dragged out, what, 20 bags? Matt, yeah. easy, if not yeah, more. Easy. And then it was a whole boat, wasn't it? The looking, whole boat was full. Yeah. And you're going back five days later with the clients and you're basically doing the same, if not more. And I think what, what that showed me was, you know what, it's not just about the recycling it's about that consumerism. It's about having the disposable coffee cup and the, the water bottle, not disposable coffee cup, sorry, the non-disposable coffee cup, your own cup, not buying a cup every day, not having the um, plastic single-use water bottles. It's got a sort of, there's got to be a change at source because you, you literally, it's a conveyor belt of, of rubbish. You sort yeah, of almost and, like on a treadmill. Yeah, and, and Asia is terrible because you'll buy a drink which comes in a plastic bag with a plastic straw in another plastic bag that's all tied up <laughs> and then you get it given or you buy a piece of fruit which goes in a bag in a bag, you know, with another straw and it's just the culture, but they have nothing. They haven't got the sanitation to wash these things and do it. So everything has to be disposable and that culture has just grown. Water is so cheap. It's much easier to just go and grab a bottle of water. It's safer than drinking it from any other source and it's that kind of infrastructure we need to... They can't be blamed for the way they live life because no. without it, they would literally be putting themselves in great danger and their children in danger. Yeah. And I think that's where we need to kind of find this balance is we're very lucky in the modernised Western world where we can say, but it's all right, I can buy a plastic water bottle that's reusable plastic and I can use it for the next three years because the water that comes out of my tap is safe to drink and it's safe for my children to drink. So I can fill it up and I can fill it up in an airport and I can fill it up in the street without dying. But it's a very, we're in yeah, a very I, privileged I, position to make those decisions and be all eco-warriors. But I'm really more concerned about how we change it for the people who can't. We can't ask them to be poorer. We can't ask them to, to have no, a, a harder, yeah, no. more dangerous... There's got to be some levelling up. Yeah, there has to be. We have to level the playing fields for everyone, I think. And um, yeah, everyone do what they can. Well, I think one of the great things is, is that there's one country in the world that has banned the plastic bag. And it's not a Western country. It's not, you know, Australia or America. Or, you know, it's Rwanda. OK, <laughs> it's a country in the middle of Africa has banned the plastic bag. When you uh, in Brunei, when you when you land in there, you have to say no alcohol, no cigarettes. OK, when you land in Rwanda. You have to say no plastic bags, and they search your they search your luggage if you're you know if you're thought to have one, and they fine you if you do. A country in the middle of Africa has banned something that we, as a Western country, can't. Why? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. We, now we have to pay bags in Norway. They're about twelve pence for a carrier bag in Norway now. So when you do the shopping, but we all still take them. Yeah, because because there's not actually them. another option. We haven't quite worked out that if we offer these larger bag for life that's never taken off in Norway so ultimately you've got to kind mm. of look after the plastic bag you used last time and hope that the handles don't fall off <laughs> this time and it, it's a bit of a dead economy so you know we've gone the whole hog we have these netted bags now that we've kind of bought in and, and we use them but we are the only ones uh, people look at us like we're very strange um, and we go around putting all of our shopping in these netted bags but everyone else is still using plastic bags 
Well, Matt, you you think they're looking at you strangely because of the bags. I think yeah. it's more they're just looking at you, and it, it's the it's the bearded look with the oh. knives. Got to explain this on him. He's in the top, like Arctic Circle of Norway, so knives are okay to carry on your person. But he's there in the big jacket with the knives, with the oh, I've got a big seal skin, skin hat, hat yep. that you have. As... <laughs> yeah, that, that... I'm just picturing you walking into the supermarket. <laughs> well, the great thing is, is I just look like everybody else here, so that's fine. It's the one place I found that. That's I, true. Uh, I finally fit in. It's um, you can walk around you where can get away with it. Yeah, you can walk around with a seal on your head, and uh, <laughs> and nobody gets funny about it. It's um... <laughs> that's that's the quote for the fucking. <laughs> <It is. laughs> that's right. It's all, not, it's... not the environment, but you know, not not, not the jungle. <laughs> you can walk around with a seal on your head. But it is, you know, and the thing is, I love the fact that up here, the only thing that's going to keep you warm in minus thirty-five is a seal hat. What I dislike is people walking around London with a Canada Goose jacket on because I've never understood the point. You don't, you don't need to have oh, that. It I live in a place me. where reindeer right. skin shoes are better than man-made shoes. They are just better. They are warmer. You know, they they function much better. They've got a better grip on ice and snow. I get it. I get it. In this environment, natural things work. They, they genuinely work. They have worked for years and years. People still use reindeer clothing. We still wear sealskin clothing. Those they're a, they're a daily part of people's you know attire, um, and I think that's fine. I, I think that when you live in a place where it has to be done, it has to be done. But when you take yourself out of that environment, you have to understand that you know you really, really don't need to be wearing that kind of attire walking around. If you have, uh, if you have any feelings for, for what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, not only that. I mean, yeah. nobody likes sweating that much on the tube. Oh, it's terrible. Like, oh, God, I, I, I can smell yeah. it. I can, I see the car like different carriage. Yeah. I'm going in a different carriage. And, and- um, but let, let's get away from the Arctic because this no. is another episode. We're, and we've got to stick to the jungle. We've got to get back to it. Let's, I'm feeling the heat already. I'm feeling no. the humidity. Um, and, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you know, leading an expedition in the jungle. So I went as a medic on this last trip uh, to, to Ulamuda. That was my first time properly in the jungle. Like, you know, you go to like your foray, you know, as a, as a teenager into Thailand, you know, you go see the jungle but you know this that was proper jungle what we were doing last year and we, you know we do this wet and dry routine that you know we talked about a bit earlier you know where you sort of have this one set of clothes you, you wash in the river or the waterfall I know you guys had a waterfall um we were not that lucky uh and you know then you sort of get out and you're trying not to get muddy again as you sort of make your way back to your hammock and then you got to do this sort of quick strip it's the red light district of the of the jungle uh, as you, you know, you're trying to see what you're doing because it gets dark, you know, at 6 p.m., 7 p.m., it's already dark in the jungle. And, you know, I remember getting into my hammock. I'd like, done all my, you know, put talcum powder, you know, and the antifungal powder everywhere that I need to, to to get dry. And then I just hear the, ah, as someone else's tarp collapses in the rain. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. And, you know, Stuart and, and Josh, you know, who are two of my other mentors alongside Matt, um, sort of shouted over, Luke, that's your role. And I was like, ah, oh, I see how it is. And so I sort of have to roll out of my of my very nice dry area into the rain again, you know, slipping and sliding, trying to fix this woman's uh, tarp while she well, she's very dry inside her hammock. She's like, she's happy. Uh, and then you know, you get it all sorted. 
and then it's back into the river <laughs> at 8 30 p.m when it's already pitch black and everyone else is like you'll be fine mate don't worry and you know and then you see you got to come back and get dry again so you know as an expedition leader or as a, as a minion, or I think we, we call ourselves apprentices now. I think that's the is the more politically I, I'm correct not, I'm, not, I'm not on board <laughs> no, with right, branding. No. I'm sticking with minions. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. Minion. Uh, you know, there's a lot of responsibility there. But tell me, uh, you know, Scopey or Matt, you know, uh, being expedition leaders, how, is it, how have you found, you know, being a leader in that environment where people are, like, really challenged? As we said, it's a hard environment to learn. I think one of the... Um... Well, one of the stories I keep telling people, because I've got a day job besides the business, and they often ask about the jungle. One of the things I quite like watching is if I'm guiding in the UK and you get people with a bit of an ego, um, that can be an issue. You know, you, you sort of got to work a way out to sort of work your way around them. And then the jungle sort of does it for you. Um the jungle destroys people's ego and soon sort of puts them in the place. So I, I think in, in some ways it can be a little bit easier. Like on, on the recent trip um, in Langkawi, we had every client uh, from Mad Dog Adventures come from via LinkedIn. They were all business owners. They were all successful in their own right. So there was a bit of male ego going on. And um, at any point in the first two days, they wanted to be alongside whoever was at the front. So if Matt's at the front, they want to be alongside him or just in front of him. Until the, I think it was the third day when we met about five different species of snake in one day. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it was oh, like, All of a sudden, that was very lonely at first. the front. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You go first. Uh, go check that out. Um, I don't want to go in there. And, and everybody hovered around the rocks by this pool. You know, they didn't want to go into where we were going to go and camp. They're like... <laughs> And I was like, well, that sorts that out, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. People, um, that once you get that realisation, because for any jungle expedition that you'll do with me, especially, or especially through, through us as a business, we all meet up in one particular place. It's usually the hotel. We'll all sit down on that first day, and then we'll come out with this PowerPoint. Now, this PowerPoint was created by myself and Stuart many years ago, and it's been changed many times. Stuart's added his bits. I've added my bit. And it just gets more terrifying, really. The, the stuff in there is, it's more pictures of things that actually happened on an expedition. You know, there's there's pictures from that Stuart's <laughs> taken from expeditions years ago with Deadfall that's crashed through the entire base camp. And he's sitting there at his bench with a tree next to him. And there's landfalls where the whole place has disappeared. You know, there's pictures of me hiding under these huge vast trees that have crashed down you know we, we sell this terror and they all sit there and they all look at you as if say yeah that's it's not really a problem you know it's fine it's never going to happen to me and you take them into the jungle and obviously we select an area of jungle that's a little bit more tame in the beginning and we walk them into a kind of steady area we start talking about moving through the jungle don't step over logs step on them and step off them don't put any part of your body where you can't clearly see. We try to drill it all in. And then complacency sets in. And then you have that day where you find five different species of snake within 12 minutes of each other. And the, the team dynamic alters rapidly. And, and, and that's it. Because, you know, this, this was day two. We'd come into the jungle on day one. Um, we had a great camp. Nothing really spectacular happened everyone found the place we found places to wash and do stuff that was great day two exactly the same kind of easy camp place and then we walked around to day three we came into the foot of this huge cascading waterfall 
And literally, as we came up to the pool, you know, there he was, you know, just sunning himself on a rock. This, in, you know, huge, big cobra. And you think, Jesus right, Christ. Okay, so we've, we've literally just moved into your area. So I scared him away with uh, with a couple of rocks and, and he took the hint and he disappeared up. And But he was always going to be around. He was something we had to think about. We then crossed over the water to the other side where we were going to go and camp. And everyone was a little bit touchy at this point. They'd just seen their first snake and everybody saw the snake. Um, and he wasn't giving up lightly. Instead, you know, he didn't just walk away. You know, he, he, no, he took, he, a, few he, he took he? a couple. He turned around and gave me a good kind of squared up look. Um, and then we went inside and then a Raglas pit viper fell out the canopy and landed right next to someone else on the floor. And that was literally someone brushing past uh, a sapling that, you know, maybe three meters above his head. There was a young juvenile pit viper. He came down and that was it. Then people really started to uh, settle. So then everyone tracked themselves back to this kind of rocky outcrop, which was this, this beautiful pool. Eventually, they all plucked up the courage to go and set up the hammocks and everyone kind of went in and that was that was some very tentative uh, gardening that was going on people were no longer just flailing around with parangs it was very very delicate nobody wanted to disturb very much of the undergrowth and hammocks were up everybody's sitting down eating dinner and then and then it was really the pierre de resistance we're sitting there everyone's relaxing and a huge python pops his head out of the water and just starts looking at the whole group and there's a guy sitting maybe six feet from this python, eating his dinner. And all of a sudden, he looks down, and, and there he was. He was just having a little look around. And he was just hiding out under a pool that all been swimming in for the past, you know, 45, 50 minutes. And it's that stark reminder of, um, you know, you aren't alone when you're in the jungle. You are far from alone. But equally, if you let things be, if you leave them be... Um, you know, the juvenile pit viper had to be moved out of camp. That's not the kind of snake we want around clients. They're kind of uncontrollable, horny teenagers with very sharp teeth and no control over how much envenomation. Um, and that, as a, as a leader, is, uh, is something we have to kind of take care of for the sake of the clients and, and get him out of the way. Um, the cobra had to go as well. He had to be moved on because it's not a risk anybody wants to take. The python was kind of fine. He wasn't really of any issue to us. He was he was relaxing. Um, and we did get some incredible GoPro footage of him underwater. Um, and he was a magnificent beast. He was so big. He was uh, and the colour patterns of things. He was he was a really beautiful snake. But it is that that high end, and like you say, they were all business owners, they all came in there, and you feel that attitude when you start to do that first chat. When I'm sitting with that PowerPoint, I can feel the the attitude of I'm a business owner, I've got this shit covered. I've been doing we normally have ex-military people there, yeah. we've been there and done it before. Um, but it does change, it it changes people. That realization when actually everything I think I know just changed very quickly. Um that's what I love about the jungle. The, the jungle, like you say, it's a, it's a true leveler of, of people, a leveler of men. You put yourself in a position where it's all going great. And then before you know it, you've just had this stark reminder that um, everything that was in that ridiculous PowerPoint you weren't really paying so much attention to happened to, be, uh, happened to be somewhat real. Um, you know, and problems in the jungle. I, I think on this, this... Go on. What were you going to say, Mark? No, I was going to say, I think on the subject of snakes as well, one of my favourite conversations was um, with one of the clients in the run-up to to the trip. And um, 
I, I said something about like you know different venomous snakes, and then you got things like that the, the locals might nickname a five meter or a five minute snake. And he said, "Well, what do you do if you're bitten by one of those?" I said, "Well, like, we'll probably give you the satellite phone." He said, "Okay." And, and who do you call? You know, to come rescue. I said, "No, you you call your wife or, or your family. You're going to be dead in five minutes." And he just and then just the call just went dead. And he's like, "Yeah, but really, Mark, what do you really do?" He's like, "No, no, that that's it. Like in a yeah, um, in a nutshell." That, I think people stuck in the modern modern world that haven't been to those places, they really um, are used to the the fact that there's always something you can do. There's always you know, um, a backup plan and, and the realization they're going somewhere where bad things really can happen, um, that are out of our control. Um, both us and, and their control is quite a wake up call, but I think it also makes you, reminds you, you know, that you're alive. It really does. It really does. It's a, it's a stark juxtaposition from the day-to-day office job where those challenges and dangers are, are, they're always perceived challenges and dangers they're not physically challenging they're not physically actually dangerous they're economic crisis maybe but you take people from that situation where their stresses are always you know these perceived dangers of, of how things are going to be and put them into a tropical setting a very kind of primitive setting where really you you get that understanding again of what true kind of fear is what that true understanding of actually i have no control i can't I haven't even got phone signal to Google this. You you take away those abilities for people to to find out information and to try and find a quick solution. And that tends to be the kind of killing feature for people in the jungle. I have been running jungle expeditions for, for a long time. I've done a lot of time in the jungle um, with clients. And I don't think I've ever finished the jungle expedition with all the clients we started with. That doesn't mean they've died, by the way, for the kind of for, for the, pur- for the purpose of, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad the, you for the purpose of transparency the purpose of and the um, you know and the projection of positive business in the future. Um, they didn't die, and, and none of them left crazy ill. It was actually the jungle that just broke them. It either destroyed a piece of equipment through yeah through laziness. Because when we're in the jungle, we get extremely tired. We start to become lethargic. We start to you know, take things for granted. We stop paying attention. Um, and it's super easy. For example, that happened on the recent trip with, uh, with Mad Dog Adventures. We had a client who managed to get in his hammock, um, not really paying attention, and ripped out his entire bug net on the hammock. You know? Jesus. Not ideal. That's the end. <laughs> you know, for, for a comfortable client experience... Yeah having lost now your that sanctuary of your sanity uh which is another good uh, goring phrase there it really is once you ruin that once you destroy that one safe haven you have and that can be the dry clothes you know we talked before luke about those kind of dry mm. clothes wet clothes you destroy an element of that little sanctuary you've got and all of a sudden the jungle becomes incredibly difficult it becomes incredibly difficult because we've taken with us this modern element that's going to allow us to survive through the jungle. And that is that modern waterproof tarp, that modern bug net enclosed hammock with those nice dry, dry clothes and foot powdered socks and that small area where you hang. I mean, for anyone who's never experienced it, you have to. You have to do 12 hours of sweaty, sandy misery trekking through the jungle, fighting off leeches, 
picking them off your neck, being eaten by mosquitoes, dodging snakes, being genuinely terrified, and then have that moment where you lay in that hammock in those dry clothes after the sweating has stopped and you found that little ecosystem inside your hammock. Once you've experienced that, (laughs) I don't think you will ever undervalue a two-star hotel again in your life. <laughs> never, never. Every every terrible hostel that I've been in is way better. It's so worth but it. it's worth it, and it's yeah, it it's really worth the fun. Oh, it is. I must. Well, I sleep better in my hammock than I do in my bed. I think I actually kept caught up on sleep in the jungle. I was I was knackered when we went out. I don't sleep particularly well in uh, my bed, and at, you know, some nights I think I was getting knocking out twelve hours in the yes. hammock. You know, and then like a little laying in the morning as. It, you know, waiting for the sun. Oh, it is beautiful. Up. Yeah. And that's the benefit, isn't it? You, know, you, you, you get in your hammock about 5, 6 p.m. and you're there. And if you're lucky, well, it depends if you like the guys you're with or not, or if you want a bit of space. You know, if it's not raining, you can chat yeah. between yourselves in your hammocks. Uh, or you can throw, like, I had podcasts, I had movies on my phone. I know some people are like, that's not proper adventuring. You know, you're, you're having the modern world with you. But I like listening to music. I like having that sort of escapism i read i read three books in the jungle uh i brought like tiny little ones i could throw in a dry bag together and you know i did catch up on a lot of sleep yeah you know? whereas in a mountain i'm sort of there i'm like i'm like there like a bit cold uh matt hates mountains uh i'm gonna get him up one but you know you're a bit cold you're in this tent you haven't got a lot of space you're like you're like oh i don't really want to go outside because that looks miserable let's close the- <laughs> let's close yeah. the door again in the jungle you wake up uh, we had gibbons, which are our monkeys with very long arms. They can do massive jumps. They're very fast through the jungle, uh, and they'd wake you up at five a.m. with like that with their with their hooting and it was uh and their calls in the morning and it's a, it's a lovely way to wake up. But you know, on on the topic of animals, you know, this is called medicine on the frontier. We have got two expedition guides with us. I think it's worth talking a bit about snakes. Uh, because snakes are, you know, they're not the worst out there. You know, there's a lot of other animals. We had leeches a lot in Ulamuda. Uh, you can have mosquitoes. You can have ants. And those bull ants, oh, my God, they're, they're painful. But, let's, you know, talking about snakes, people love them. People hate them. But, you know, they are there. And there's a couple different species of snakes. Uh, you know, you've got your constrictors. I remember holding the boa constrictors, and, you know, they like to crush you to death. But luckily, they're not as much of an issue with us. Uh, and then you've got your vipers and a lapids, and you've got your colorbrids as well, which you know aren't as much of an issue. But with all of them, the treatment, if I'm not wrong, guys, is it, pretty much the same. And, and Matt, maybe you want to walk us through the treatment. Uh, absolutely. So the the basis we we take snakes very seriously in the jungle, um, and that's the main reason for that is a snake is a snake. It doesn't really matter from a from the the outset of the client they don't know the difference between the snakes. So if somebody is bitten by a snake, it usually happens very quick. Um, I know not on an expedition I've run, have we had snake bites, we've definitely had a perceived snake bite, something we thought could have been, uh, but it wasn't. Uh, I am aware of other expeditions that have been run, especially with, with guys like people like Stuart and stuff, where they have had uh, incidents with snakes. And, and basically you have to follow a particular... Uh, it, we have come up with a particular method, which is used by, by many other people in slightly different adaptions um, that, that we feel is, is the best way to do it. The first one is we need to try and identify the snake by any means possible. And that is literally, can you remember, was it big? Was it small? What kind of shape head did it have? 
Um, all of these things are important for us to try and work out, you know, how much time have we got, really? That, that's all we're thinking. How much time we've got and, and what is going to be the potential outcome of this? What are the issues, the down-the-line issues that are going to happen? The most important things, obviously, are to calm down and to stop unnecessary movement. That's probably the best way to, to think of it. Snake venom tends to travel through the lymph. And, and lymph is activated by movement. Um, so we really need to try and, and, and stop that. And, and we tend to put what we call like a lymph block, like a wrap. So if, for example, you were bitten on the back of the calf, I would be starting a wrap. And we, we tend to wrap with something called vet wrap, um, also known as like equestrian wrap. It's kind of a self-adhesive, waterproof bandage that can be reused. It's fantastic, actually. It's something I think everybody should carry a, a small roll of it in a med kit. Because it's great for binding legs together and making splints with. It's just an incredibly versatile bandage system, which doesn't need to be sterile. It can be stuck in the side. If it gets wet, it doesn't lose its stickiness um, because it, it's to do with its shape that it sticks to itself. Um, not particularly that it's got any kind of adhesive on it. Um, so we start above. Obviously, we're going to try and, and identify the wound site. It's sometimes good to mark it with a Sharpie or something because sometimes it can be extremely small, um, almost impossible to see. Um, but especially if someone's seen themselves being bitten by a snake, that works. If not, people could just start getting, you know, everyone's walked through the woods and been slapped in the back of the leg by a twig. That, that could be a snake bite in the jungle. You could have just stood on a small snake. It was just turned around and just cracked you in the back of the calf. So we might be looking for the effects afterwards, but I mean that, that we can take another time. We can do a whole episode on actual state bites, but in that sense, we're going to find the location of the wound. We've hopefully had some kind of identification of snake. More importantly, where did it go after it bit you? Did it disappear out of base camp? Did it come back in towards base camp? Did it do those things? They're, they're kind of super important to, to establish. We've identified where the, the, the bite site is. We've marked the bite site. We can potentially swab around and clean the bites out with a little bit of iodine if we needed to. But ultimately, that wrap needs to go on. We start above the wound site. So in between the, the core of the body and the wound site is where we're starting. We're going to wrap our way down and past. And then we can come back up and, and over um, so that we are basically compressing the lymph. We're then going to try to immobilize the limb. And then we're going to try and get people out. Um, for example where myself and mark were recently uh last year you know we were on an island that is a 50 minute boat ride and that doesn't mean that i have a guy sitting in a boat who's going to be there in 50 minutes this is i've now got to make communication by satellite i've got to try and locate somebody to take the boat all of these things can take time because it is economically suicide to have someone sitting paid in a boat ready to go 24 hours a day so we have people on call, but they're still going to have to get up. They're going to have to get dressed. They're going to have to throw clothes on, dive in the car, drive down, start the boat up, take it out of the harbour. coming. So we're looking at at least an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and a half before someone is going to be with us. Um, and for some snake bites in some locations in the body, that's too long. Mm. Well, and I think it's worth mentioning that we're not carrying anti-venom either. Like it, it's... Well, we don't we don't have portable fridges, yeah. with portable generators to keep. You know, it doesn't yeah. happen. You know this. Yeah, exactly. The variety. the variety of snakes and you know the availability of such drugs. Um, so ultimately, we're looking at either out by boat 
or we're calling in helicopters and we're trying to get people out of areas. And these things have been done um, in the interior jungles that we operate in. We have deals with local helicopter companies. We leave a wad of cash there. In a case of emergency, you open the envelope uh, and you fire up the rotors and you come and get us because we're not joking. This is a it's a real life problem that we've got and, um, and, and we're paying for that service. So those things have to be thought of. The jungle itself, like you said, Luke, it's not just the snakes that are there to kill you. Some of the biggest killers in the jungle, flash floods, deadfall, all of those elements are things we have to look for. You know, the deadfall is a real issue. We have been in camps, and when you have a group of 12, 15, 20 people in the jungle, it's a large area you spread around, and it is seldom you find an area of jungle big enough Mm. to house 15 humans that hasn't got at least 10 horrific deadfalls that need to be dealt with before we can set up camp. And that's just a trained eye. It's just a keen eye of looking, is that tree alive or not? It looks perfectly fine. Mm. You go up above the layer of the first canopy or in above the layer of the second canopy, you could have over 500 kilos of rotten beast above your head, just waiting for a gust of wind in one direction in the canopy. And that's it. That is a properly mm. good night. You know, when that lands on you, um, that is going to just desecrate camp. And it happens. It happens all the time. You lay in that hammock on a night time and you will hear those giants falling. It's terrifying. It's terrifying because you sit there thinking, is he going to hit me? Some of these trees are over 100 meters tall. You know, where are you going to be? You've no idea the radius or the, you know, where it's going to come down. And I think that just adds to the element of adventure. It has to be an accepted risk of jungle travel because without accepting those risks, you would never Mm. go there. Um, and you have to do everything you can to mitigate them. But it is literally everything you can. You can't, you don't have extra vision. You can't see through canopies. You've just got to try and make the best possible judgment you can. The same with waterways. The jungle rains terribly and then stops. A river can go up two meters in the space of 20 minutes. That could be the difference of we have gone over a small watercourse to new foraging grounds. We've gone out for a recce. We've gone out to do a lesson, a simulation. And now we can't get back to camp. And it is not worth the risk of trying to get back to camp. You know, because, you know, water systems are incredible. That's the importance of having that basic equipment with you, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we talk a lot about, especially through the kind of military circles and stuff, about these EDCs, these everyday carries. In the jungle, they kind of come into their own. Yeah, have a little gold bag with you. Having enough stuff so that you can eat and potentially have some element of shelter for a 12-hour period until a river drops down and you can safely get back to camp. That's super important because there has been so many times where we've been out in the jungle and we've got to a place and we just can't move forward from that location because you're literally stuck. You've got to wait and you've got to find a, a safe time to cross and get back to camp. So equipment becomes really important in the jungle. And equipment in the jungle is great because there's very little of it because we match equipment with skill sets in the jungle. It's one of the few places where those two things are very, very important to have together. You know, you've got to have the skill sets. You've got to be able to use your parang. Learning good parang skills or machete skills, for people who don't know what a parang is, you know, that gives you the ability to make a rudimentary shelter. Um, It gives you the ability to make something that's potentially going to allow you to cross over a water system that's flooded. Having those skills matched with some simple 
equipment, a very simple tarp, a very simple small hammock chair or something that can get you up off the ground. And it's going to be miserable. The night is going to be miserable. You are not in the sanctuary of your sanity. You haven't got your dry clothes. You haven't got your, you know, your podcasts. You're literally sitting in the buttress of a tree being eaten alive. Or you're sitting in a small hammock chair under a tarp contemplating your life choices. That's that's the way it goes. It's um, The jungle will do that to you. Where's my yeah. two? Where's my two-star hostel? Where? Yeah, where? I want it, it so, in the jungle. Uh, so having those skill sets in the jungle too. Where's my cockroach yeah. friends? <laughs> yeah, exactly. G- give, give me something. Give me something. It is hard though, isn't it? And I think that's where possibly you know that military mindset of you know being able to adapt to any situation really comes into it. And I know uh, Matt, you do. I'm sure Scopy, you know, you, uh, wearing webbing and you know, having you know, the kit that you need for 24 hours on you. Uh, but it's being able to, to use that kit in a lot of different ways and maybe yeah. not the ways yeah, that absolutely. it was meant to be used. No, and you need kit that does more than, you know, one of the things I always ram home to people is try and try and choose equipment that does more than one job. Yep. You know, the, so the, yeah, you're not carrying a million one items, you're carrying some quality items that can actually be used in multiple ways like Matt said, in conjunction with your skill set and a bit of imagination. Absolutely. And one piece of kit you showed me on the last expedition, um, which I really, really liked, was the Grail. What's this? So water purification in the jungle is always an issue. You know, we're going to have to pre-filter. Carrying a big pump in the jungle that gets packed with sediment and things isn't a particularly smart idea. You know, they just don't work. Um, So we're back to... You know, we're using chemicals. We're using iodines. We're using chlorines to treat and and process water, which tastes horrific. It really does take away from the enjoyment of, of drinking. Um, so when Mark came out this year, obviously through um, through Mad Dog and through his connections, he's been using a system called the Grail. The Grail is a water bottle. Ultimately, it looks like a water bottle with a screw top on. But what's ingenious about it is it is itself a like a pressure fed pump, a water filter. The base of the of the water bottle pulls away from the core of the inside, so you have a dirty container and a clean container inside that remain separate from each other. You scoop up the dirty water out of the uh, the water source, preferably through some form of pre filter, if that's a, a bandana or or whatever you've got to try and just get out as much as that kind of heavy sediment. You place on the the remainder of the water bottle, you open the lid, and you just push down with your body weight, and that filters the water. I was very dubious. I really was. And I thought, what the hell, let's give it a go. So I used it for the entire expedition. Um, The tests have been done. It's, you know, it has got some fantastic scientific uh, tests been done with it. It does work. It works uh, fantastic. And what an amazing system it was to have something attached on that belt kit. You know, you talked about wearing webbing. In the jungle, I tend to have that. I have a chest kit system, which I wear. And then I have a belt kit with a, my water container, my med kit in. And I have a small like drop pouch on the back where I can put things like my EDC hammock or a small tarp for day trips. So I tend to travel out with everything I need. But that grail system passed beautifully in with that setup. It wasn't cumbersome. It wasn't too big. Um, they look pretty cool, which is always good. Everyone likes to look cool on expedition. But it really gave me a water container that I could use all the time and drink from and the method of being able to collect and treat water on the fly without it tasting like shit, which is really important because I'm not a big fan of drinking chlorinated swimming pool water. 
Um, I use iodine by choice. It's not ones. great. That's it. If you can get a titanium version of that as well, that's even better, isn't it? And I, I just think... Oh, that's, that'd that's, be nice. They've just released one, but we're waiting to get... Um, we're chasing the distributor to get them to uh, be ideal for what we yeah. do. You know, being able to... If the, if the actual cartridge, because, you know, they do... I think that smaller one does something like 100 litres. Yeah. And if the cartridge died on you while you were out, being able to then use it as a boiling vessel as well, you, you're squared yeah. away, aren't you? Again, going back to that multi-purpose bit of kit, it's a water bottle purifier yeah. and a cook pot. And that, um, that for me, is that ticks so, so many boxes. Because the one thing we have noticed over the years of doing this um, with all the guests is the amount of weight they carry has a huge impact on how enjoyable the expedition is for them. And kit checking in the jungle yeah. as an expedition leader is possibly mm. one of the most important things to do before you go into the jungle. There is so many people arrive with a hammock and tarp system they've never used. They've never even opened it. It's come straight out of the packet. They've never checked. Covered in plastic. Yeah, covered in plastic. You know, they've never checked that the Check. tarp fits over the hammock. They don't actually know oh, whether they're going to have yeah. a, a dry system. They've never broken in jungle boots. I have been on expedition. One of the very first expeditions I went on with Stuart, um, I was the same thing. I was running businesses. I had very little time. I had to grab some new jungle boots. And that was possibly the most miserable jungle experience I've had in my life with having such terrible blisters from being in an area that is, you know, the jungle is heavily sedimented. So when you get moisture inside your boots, it's moisture mixed with 80 grit sandpaper and and it just erodes you. The jungle just erodes the human body. So not being prepared, having the wrong equipment with you, it sucks. I, I can imagine, you know, uh, Josh and I uh, went for massages when we got back to civilization. And I dread to think what the poor masseuse would have thought when she saw your feet, Matt. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to... It is, and it and it's really uh, that kind of free care, and and equally the routine of you know the foot routine in the jungle, which is super important. You know, you talked about running down to the river and getting your shower, sneaking your way back up the muddy terrain, trying not to get dirty, stripping off, fighting off the ten thousand mosquitoes which are trying to bite you whilst you're frantically drying yourself with a car chamois, and squeeze. <laughs> you know, it's it's such an elegant evening. Um, you know. I, I know this we're is selling it, this here, is a problem. We? I, <laughs> we're really you, selling you it. You cannot sell it. Yeah. You have to just want to go to the jungle because as soon as I open my mouth and try to explain it, it, <laughs> it yeah. sounds horrific. But you know, you're squeegeeing water off you with this chamois. There will be a sadomasochist yeah. somewhere that goes. Yeah, that there is. Great. I mean, I'm literally talking to two of them, so it's. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, and and then you get in the hammock, right? And you you're trying to now drag up dry pajama bottoms onto a slightly clammy ass, and everything's getting stuck. And there's there's a bit of sand in the bottom of the hammock, and you know it's not elegant. But you get there, you find this set, and you think, right, now I've got to do my feet. And the first thing you're mm. doing is you grab in for that bottle of hand sanitizer, and you know that the next 15 seconds are going to be an enlightening experience. And you and you kind of you know you you fill your hand with the hand sanitizer. Oh no, don't! I'm, I'm, you, I'm PTSD. And you just get it on there, and then you just let the burn happen. And it, you know, <laughs> and you give them a hell of a scrub, and you're rubbing it all in, and all that's doing is drawing the moisture out of your feet. But it's hit every cut, every blister, every slightly broken toenail that's happened in the jungle. Your hands are also burning because they're full of mosquito cuts. <laughs> 
you know, and then you just gotta you just gotta man it up for for about twenty seconds. You just gotta sit there and scream internally. You, it's, it's when you rejoin the altos in the school choir. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and then it's the foot powder, and and you know we teach people to take a, a nylon stocking and decant the foot powder up into it and make like a climbing short ball. I found that's the easiest way. Um, mm. And you know, and then you've got to start powdering up. And you, you then start to inhale vast amounts of foot powder. Um, the inside of your hammock looks like the inside of it. It does. It looks like the inside of a Rockstar's hotel room. There's white powder <laughs> everywhere. You're breathing it in. You, you start to like put your face against the bug net of the hammock just to suck some clean air in. <laughs> and, and you're just waiting for We're... the dust to drop. <laughs> but if you don't do it, if you don't do that, if you don't powder your feet and powder your crotch and powder your armpits, you just start to rot. Mm. And these these systems we do, they're so important. And it's so nice to spend time. How wrong is it that I'm sitting again? <laughs> but but it is. <laughs> yeah. It's the best way to be. It is the best way to be. And I just think if any of that to anybody listening sounds remotely interesting, then you just have to get yourself in the jungle because it is... As Mark said right at the beginning, the epitome of Type Two fun. Um, it is, yeah. It's you, you are there as a team. The bonding that happens as a team in the jungle is incredible. People genuinely start to come together. They genuinely start to help each other out. Um, you know, it, it is not glamorous when you have to bend over in front of your mate and ask if you've got a leech somewhere that you can't see yourself. <laughs> you know, but you have to do it. This kind of team building, you you see aside to your fellow travelers that you never wish to see um you see angles of human beings that you don't ever want to see again people are just randomly urinating or or checking themselves for leeches or you know you have no privacy you wash together you eat together you you laugh and joke and and and, and be ill together it's just the way the jungle is it's a true experience as a group to travel through the jungle and i think that's what makes it the teamwork thing as well is, is something we talk about a lot on the uk courses that's an expedition skill in itself going on an exped to the back of beyond somewhere that the, the sort of hardships we've all been discussing with people that maybe you wouldn't normally get along with um different to your social circle uh, people that maybe you wouldn't even like um, and you've got to muck in and get on with it and, and become that team. Otherwise, you're just, as a group, you're just not going to get by. Yeah, it is. And it, that kind of group psychology, that group togetherness, how, how we operate as a group, has become something that I've, uh, I've become very aware of recently in the last kind of six years of how we can make that experience better, how we can start to pull groups together. And I think taking lessons from places like the jungle, where it, it's... It's so important in the jungle. And I can I think it kind of leaves everything you said before, Mark. Everything about if you can do it in the jungle, you can generally do it in other places. If you take that personal admin and that kind of drive and dedication yeah. to yourself, that foot powder and that personal time on yourself and keep to the routines and, and make sure that you are eating, you are drinking. Before you go to bed, you're purified water ready for the morning so you can have a drink through the night if you want to. 12, 13 hours laying in a hammock is a long time. You're going to have to go to the toilet. You're going to have to. You know, and the way that works, this is a great, another great one. This is going to draw people in, if not put them off. You know, I've decided <laughs> I need to go to the toilet. 
<laughs> all right, so we're sitting in the hammock and we're like, all right, well, you try to put it off, don't you? Suppress it. You suppress it for at least an hour. <laughs> deep, deep down. Until yeah. the point where you think, shit, no, I'm, there's no way. There is no escaping this. It is inevitable. It's happening. So we reach for the toilet bag, which is hanging in the hammock. And in there, you have toilet paper, a lighter, some hand sanitizer, and mosquito coil. So I don't think, right. So now we light the mosquito coil. We let it burn. It's a bit like cooking off a grenade. So you've turned the pin out. You let it cook for a little bit. And then you open a small area of zip in the hammock and you throw it out. So you, you throw your grenade and out. And it's raining, by the way. It's raining, j- j- by the just way. Just so you know, it's raining. Yeah. So you, you're trying to land this somewhere. And, and, I, and we will quickly discuss the number one because that's, that's pretty easy. There's a skill to the number one. Obviously, ladies, I think, have it worse in the jungle because trying to pee on your side with a shiwi is never going to happen. All right, so... Out of the hammock. Out, it's out of the hammock for the ladies. Yeah. The gents, depending on how well endowed you are, there is a potential that you can roll onto one side, <laughs> open up the zip a little bit, and, and then you've got to expose the old fella to the beasts. That's the problem. You know, he's going to be... He's going to be outside the wire. Um, and then you've got to try and pee... <laughs> without, without, oh God! <laughs> you've, got, you've got to pee without peeing on yourself. With or your hammock, or the hammock. You can't after. Or the kit that's in the EDC hammock underneath. To God, you haven't left your your water shoes somewhere where you can piss on your water shoes. <laughs> and then, and then it's it's when you're done. Because there's always those after drops, right? And and they oh no! And so you've got to you've got to be pretty much sure. And you're in this, you know, trying to describe this on an audio platform is impossible. But you kind of you've got one knee up, and you're kind of hanging desperately to the ridge line of your hammock. And everyone knows at this point you've underdone all the balance in the hammock. Now you are literally teetering on the potential of flipping over, going through your bug net, and landing face down in your own piss. So. You, you've got to kind and of the, get the balance and the, mud, right. and the rain. Yeah, yeah, and the spiky, punji sticks that you've left because you were too lazy to cut them off with your parang. And, you know, you are... And the got, snake, which yeah, is there. You have no idea what's out. You have this frantic look with a head torch outside to see what's going on. And it's, um, you know, and that's just a pee. If you need to go and, you know, and, and, and properly go to the toilet, you're getting up, which means you're getting dressed which means you've got to go and dig somewhere to the toilet, which is nighttime. Nobody likes to move through the jungle in the nighttime. That's where everything that wants to eat you is definitely out hunting. You've got to find yourself a little spot. You've got to do your business, dig it in, burn your toilet paper, wash your hands, come back, dry off, change your clothes, get back into It's a huge effort. But um, in, in the, the rain. rain. Yeah, this is it. And, and, and that's just, it's all of those little elements of the jungle that make even the smallest thing an absolute adventure. Um, mm. Yeah, it's admin. Your admin has got to be so shit hot. Yeah. And it's jungle admin. It's not, it's like even regular admin or Arctic admin or, or Alpine admin, which, you know, are worlds onto themselves. It's a whole new ball game. I wasn't ready for yeah, it. it. The first two days, it's like, you got to be, I remember eating, we had cereal in Ziploc bags with a little bit of milk, you know, powder. You're adding your clean water to it. And I left it. I left it on the edge of my EDC for maybe two minutes to go have a waz. I come back, an army of ants is building a bridge, to, you know, to the EDC to take my milk powder away from me. And I was like, yeah, that's 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 two yeah. minutes. 
that's 120 seconds I wasn't on top of my admin and it had all gone yeah. to to Jack. Yeah. yeah, it really does. And it's uh, I think that's the great thing about it. I think if you if you love the thought of adventure, um, and one thing the jungle does for you is it, it strips you of everything you thought you knew and it will teach you the lessons in the most brutal way possible. Um, but if you can see through that, if you can see through the way that the jungle will, will teach its lessons, because it's a very, very hard and stern teacher, um, the rewards you get are just unspeakable. The, the, rewards, the rewards are incredible. The nature you're in, the place you are, that, that moment of waking up with gibbons above your hammock, when you slept well, you've just slept 12 hours in your hammock, you've relaxed, you are clean, you're not too hot. You know, you get up feeling dry and fresh for another day. You can eat breakfast with the sound of monkeys crashing through the canopy above your head, ready to go and explore and find a, another incredible cascading waterfall or these monstrous trees that you just shadowed under their kind of majestic. It just, it's just an incredible place, but you have to earn it. That's the key with the jungle. You have to earn it. Yeah. Mm. It's like anything in life, isn't it? The, the best things in life require hard work. Well... It, it's come to that point. We've, we've got other things to do today. Uh, so thank you so much, Scopy, for taking the time to, to join us on the Medicine on the Frontier podcast. But, you know, we haven't hopefully put everybody off. There is someone listening that is going to come to the jungle, whether that's with us or with someone else. They're just going to... They're one person. If there's one, we're doing well. Uh, and then, you know, one can turn to many more. But what would your top tip be for that one person or many who want to venture into the jungle and, and they're going to go out on their adventure. So top tip while they're in the jungle or maybe beforehand? G- give me both. Yeah, give me both. Beforehand. Beforehand, I would say get out. You know, Matt touched on it earlier, the amount of people that turn up and they've never even slept in a hammock. Um, you know, the, the hilarious description of toileting in a hammock situation <laughs> there is nothing's going to prepare you more than a get out for a couple of weekends in the woods, in your hammock and just learn to live from it to sort your kit out and, and sort of the wet and dry routine and, and going to the loo on that. That's going to make a massive difference. And and then um, the other thing I would say is is getting the, um, the kit choices right before you go. Matt touches on it, you know, on, on his kit lists and things like that. Your boots, your pack and your hammock are going to be fundamental. If you're, car- if you're uncomfortable, but the jungle makes you so uncomfortable anyway, that anything you can do to increase your comfort um, is going to be a win. No, I, th- I think that, that goes you know, to the element of it's better to buy once, spend a bit more, but you know it's going to last you. It's going to be the right yeah. kit. And then um, while you're there, I think that the key thing is, is, is not to be lazy. Um, admin is, mm. is so easy to let slip. Um, like the, the sorting out your water before you go to bed, making sure your kit's all squared away um, and your living space. So if you get the little systems in that make life easy, but then you've got to put the graft in. And and, and actually, if you put the graft in and get the admin right, I, I think the jungle's a wonderful place. Um, you touched on it earlier about mountaineering. I much prefer getting into my hammock in the jungle and I feel chilled out and relaxed. Whereas a mountaineer, get me on the side of a mountain in the Alps and a tiny little tent trying to ram myself in there and, and sort myself out with my mate who stinks. It's, yeah, no, give me the jungle any day. No, that sounds perfect. Matt, what about you? What's your top tip before and during an expedition? You know, my, my best advice after everything we've said today is try not to to kind of take the jungle on because you will lose every single time. 
understand that no matter how good you think you are, no matter how tough you are, no matter how many places you've been before, the jungle will break you, eat you up and spit you out. Accept it. Accept that it's going to happen. Accept that you cannot you kind of man your way through the jungle. You can't beat it into submission. Masculinity and those kind of prowesses do not work in the jungle because it will slap you back twice as hard. Take it for what it is. Travel through it with some grace. Tra- travel through it with, with some kind of a gentleness about you. When you move from rock to rock, pre-plan your steps. Take it easy. Don't overcommit. Don't, you know, it. it's there to be respected. And I think if you have that mindset and couple that with some good preparation and good kit and, and some good guiding, you can have a truly incredible experience in the jungle. But you have to accept that, you know, do I about a just small and biodegradable? Remember that, you know, you're in the largest composter you will ever find, and and you are just meat ready to be rotten and used as food for everything else that's there. So, oh, the expedition poets of Matt. Don't <laughs> everybody. Don't try. Don't it try. It was beautiful. And, and it was beautiful, and then we fell off a cliff. Ah, oh, sorry guys. Yeah, just don't do it. Don't just just take it with respect. Take it with respect. Do that. It'll be fine. It'll be absolutely fine. Just roll into it with a bit of respect for the jungle, and I think you will. Um, you'll love it. You'll absolutely love it. I, I I couldn't agree more. And I think the the two big takeaways I found was prepare your mind and prepare your body. And I think you know it's it's not about being the super fit, lean, mean, fighting machine. Yeah. Um, being robust. It's about being robust. It's about having that mentality. And I think the biggest thing that uh, Josh, you know, apart from being Captain Chaos, the one thing I'm known for is I'm always smiling. No matter what's going on, it's very hard to, you know, to break me in terms of my smile. So cheerfulness in the face of overwhelming adversity. I always love that saying. And the big thing as well is don't forget to hydrate. You know, you're, you're in a tropical environment. Drink water. If in doubt, drink more. Guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. We had such a blast recording it. And we're definitely going to have to get Scopey back to talk about more adventures that he and Mad Dog Adventures do. To follow along with his journey, make sure you check out the links in the description. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on all our latest releases as this series is now going to release every fortnight. Coming up on the next episode, we have two incredible guests. First is Dr. Mabley Davis, an anaesthetics trainee who is also an expedition and endurance event medic and has recently completed her MSc in expedition and wilderness medicine. She has a special interest in women in the outdoors, particularly menstruation management and suppression methods. She's joined by Dr. Natalie Brown, a research scientist focusing on the menstrual cycle and the impacts on everything from participation to competitive elite sports. It was so incredible to have these two amazing women talking about all the challenges that they face and the solutions that are on the market and ones that still need to be created today. I'm going to leave the rest up as a surprise, so make sure to tune back in for that episode and every other episode in the series as we explore medicine on the frontier.